Um, please take your Bibles. Oh, you, don't, you, you can have your Bibles handy. This, this um, is actually not going to be um, a, a Bible, a scripture-based uh, sermon today. Uh, o- over the next couple of weeks, we might even call this a little bit of a lecture series. What we are going to be doing is laying a foundation for what is coming next. I'm going to begin preaching a series. I had intended to just do an end time series, but I felt led of the Lord to actually just walk through Revelation. As we do so, certainly I will be pulling in all of the other prophecies of Scripture that pertain to Revelation. We'll be going to Daniel. We'll be going to Ezekiel. We'll be uh, going to Zechariah. We'll be going many different places as we talk through the end times and we walk through Uh, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. But that particular book, this particular book that we will be digging into um, is really where we will find um, a lot of disagreement, even among those who we would call similar in, in, in faith and practice in interpretation. And whenever we get into end times, because the concept of interpretation, how we interpret the Bible, the manner in which we do it is so integral to what we believe about the end times. I I started, I did this last time I preached it, which was several years ago, I think in 2014, and I'm going to do it again now. We're starting with the very foundation of how is it that Legacy Baptist Church, myself in particular, how is it that I interpret the Bible? How is it that I I believe, and I'm going to teach you how we ought to interpret the Bible in a manner that is consistent? And so when you find people that you disagree with heavily on end times events, or even just in part, and you say, how could we be reading the same Bible and come to such different conclusions? we'll be able to recognize that really what, what's going on here is that there is a foundational difference in how we interpret the Bible. And the question becomes, are, is how we interpret the Bible consistent with itself? And with most people, it's not. And if it were, we'd not like the conclusions that many of us would come to if we were actually consistent in interpretation. And so over the next several weeks, that's what we're going to talk about. We are going to lay a foundation in biblical interpretation. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have chosen to hang our tomorrow. We just sang a song about our raptured souls finding rest on the other side of eternity. We choose to hang our eternity upon the testimony of God as recorded through the witnesses of his glory, written many hundreds of years of human history and recorded in this book that we call the Bible. The testimony of God in his word forms the foundation for how we choose to live our lives today, not just the foundation for our eternity. It affects the way we think. It affects the way we act. It affects how we treat others. It affects how we treat ourselves. It affects our time. It affects our money. It affects our priorities. Everything that we do is affected by the word of God if we have chosen to hang our hat upon it. This is what we believers call living in hope, an earnest expectation. Biblically, hope is defined as a joyful and an earnest expectation, a well-founded expectation of good things to come. Now, hope is not a fearful longing. It's not me wondering if something's going to happen and, here's the word, hoping that it will. That's how we use hope today, but that's not how the Bible uses hope. 
When the Bible talks about hope, the Bible talks about something that it entirely that we entirely expect to happen. It's not wondering if my ticket is valid. It's rather joyfully anticipating the date of my departure. Right? The hope that, that we have in Christ is the hope when you're about to go on a vacation and you got the ticket and they're paid for and the bags are packed and they're ready to go and everything's ready and you just, you're just waiting for the date, right? You're just waiting for the date. And that anticipation, everything is in place. You know it's going to happen. And that anticipation, that's the kind of hope that we have in Christ. It's not the, well, I don't know if this is really going to work out. And th th that's not biblical hope. All of this rests upon the promises of events yet future. Future redemption, future vindication, future rest, future health, future joy. To this end, the prophecies of yet future events are very important within the scope of the biblical record because our everything hangs on what is coming, on the promise of future events. But as I mentioned already, even among genuine Bible-believing Christians, there is a wide array of disagreements regarding so many elements of the Bible. Disagreements which have left the church divided and leaves many believers and seekers confused, sometimes frustrated, and even in many unfortunate cases, resentful at the church and at the Word of God. And much of this comes down to two primary problems in the church. The first, regressive methods of interpretation. And the second, inconsistent application of interpretation. Uh, I'm going to talk about these in turn. First, the idea of regressive, which means going backwards, right? Methods of interpretation. When I discuss this particular topic, I kind of like to use the analogy of a house of cards. I don't know if you ever took a deck of cards and attempted to build a house of cards with them, but like any building, the most important element is the foundation. When you build a house of cards, a house of cards is, is somewhat fragile, right? And you have to start with a very smooth surface with a little bit of texture, because if it's too smooth, right, then the cards are just going to slip. But you need to have a, excuse me, a flat surface, not necessarily a smooth surface, but you need to have a good flat surface with, with some texture, enough so that the cards can grip. And you have to really set that bottom foundation firm, right? Strong. It needs to be a, a good bottom foundation for the next foundation to, to, to rest upon it uh, for, for the next level. And then you set that foundation, then you do the next level. And each level is so uh, uh, deeply dependent upon the level before it that, that it's been set right or else the house of cards comes crashing down. As believers, we, we need to recognize foundational truths and secondary truths, truths that are most important, and then the truths that are dependent upon, built upon foundational truths. We're actually talking about this same thing right now on Tuesday nights. We've been talking about it, and we've used the example of eternal security, and I'm going to use that example in a little bit of a different way this morning. On Tuesday nights, we're actually walking through the example of why we believe in the concept of eternal security. Uh, here, I'm not going to necessarily go through the doctrine. I'm just going to go through, the, if, I, if I can put it this way, a proof of concept. So when we talk about the doctrine of eternal security, uh, Legacy Baptist Church believes that when a person has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are secure. They are eternally secure, that they don't have to worry about falling out of salvation or losing their salvation. If they have genuinely accepted Christ as their Savior, then they are safe, kept in grace. 
And that's what the doctrine of eternal security means. Now, this is not a doctrine that is 100% explicitly stated in the New Testament. You're not going to open to any book of the New Testament and find an author that says, once you are saved, you are always saved explicitly, right? You don't find that. If we could find that, then that would settle it. Well, at least among orthodoxy. Uh, outside of orthodoxy, that, 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 nothing, nothing is ever settled. But that's the idea. But instead... Eternal security is a doctrine that we build. It's a doctrine that is built from various texts. It is a doctrine that is built from a foundation upwards. So we ask several questions. What's the gospel? What is redemption? And then what happens at redemption? And then when, if we answer the questions about what is redemption and what happens at redemption in a certain manner, then it will naturally lead us to a conclusion of eternal security. If I answer those questions in another way, it will naturally lead me to think that my salvation is not necessarily secure, that I can give up or lose my salvation. Now, if I were to purely argue for eternal security on a surface level, if I were to just open my Bible to various texts and argue it, I could do that, and I actually regularly do when I just am trying to hit the point and move on. I could take you to John 10, where Jesus says, no man can pluck you out of my hand. I could take you to John 3, where Jesus gives the spiritual picture of being born again, and what that spiritual picture can teach us about the nature of the regenerated work. But this is what we call proof texting, where I go to a text that lends itself in my favor, and I use it to attempt to prove my point. But here's the thing. I can take you to proof texts for the idea that you can lose your salvation as well. I could argue both those points just as effectively as a student of the scriptures. So what do we do when this person has scriptures that prove his point and this person has scriptures that prove his point and they can't both be right? This is why biblical interpretation is so important because one of those two is either incorrect in their interpretation or they have founded their interpretation on something very different from you. And that's why they've come to the conclusion they've come to. So we don't necessarily need to be having the discussion immediately about biblical security or eternal security. We need to find out if we're, our discussion is a disagreement about the gospel first, about what is redemption. And then if we agree on that, well, then we can build upon it. Okay, what happens at redemption? And then if we agree on that, all right, now we can talk about our disagreement in eternal security because most likely one of us is inconsistent if we agree on redemption, what happens at redemption uh, and what redemption is, but we disagree on eternal security. And that's how this process ought to work. Just as quickly and easily I can go to texts that prove one thing is another. Really, I can prove anything through proof texting in the Bible that I want to prove. I can do that. And this is why our foundation matters. Instead of just making claims, we need to build arguments, if I can put it that way. We need to start at the bottom and work our way up to the top. Pastor, that sounds exhausting. It is a little bit, but that's why I'm here, right? That, that, that's my job, to help you build that foundation, to help you walk through that, to start foundationally and build up to other doctrines. We begin at what is most clear, and we trust that God has given us that. And then we work our way to the things that are less clear, and with each level of less clarity, we become less and less dogmatic because where there's less clarity, there's more room for interpretation. 
right? Where there's, where there's absolute clarity, we don't give wiggle room because there doesn't need to be any. And then we work up from there. And this will play a very important role in guiding our interpretation because what I believe about eternal security is not just an island in itself. It is built upon the, uh, it's not just built upon the texts that lend themselves to the idea of eternal security. But if I interpret each text upon the foundation on which I built, and if my thoughts about eternal security contradict what I know to be true about what happens at redemption, then either I need to reinterpret the passage about eternal security or, or not, or I need to rethink my understanding of redemption. But here's the thing about that. If I fundamentally change my thinking on what happens at redemption, I still need to make sure that my understanding of what happens at redemption aligns with what I believe redemption is, the foundation, right? You see me working backwards? And if my new theory on what happens at redemption disagrees with what I believe redemption is, then I either need to scrap my new theory about, redemption, uh, about what happens at redemption, or I need to fundamentally change my belief about what redemption is. Now, as I present this, the flaw is that I'm going backwards. I'm regressing, right? I'm starting with a top doctrine, and then I'm being willing to change bottom doctrines to meet a top doctrine. But those are the least clear. And this is what a lot of people do in their theology. They find some element of theology that makes sense to them or that they like or that they want to believe. And they begin to use that higher level doctrine, the ones that, that, that are at the top of the pyramid, to help them define the lower foundations. We can't build a building that way. You don't start at the roof and work your way down. You start at the foundation and work your way up, right? And so this is what we need to do. We need to be careful that we're not... Now, now a lot of the debates in Christianity are on kind of tier three stuff. We need to be careful that we don't become so violently uh, uh, dogmatic about a tier three that we start using that tier three doctrine, the top of the pyramid, to influence how we think about the bottom stuff to where we allow the top stuff to actually change what we think about the foundations. Instead, we need to allow the foundations... To, to be built up and then to influence how we think about the top stuff. And this is what gets many Christians in trouble. I have a, if I can call it a third tier doctrine in mind, and it's inconsistent, so I begin to theorize about how the second and first tier doctrines can work with my third tier doctrine. And this leads to bad theology. In theological circles, this is called eisegesis. It's a Greek word that means reading into the text instead of drawing out of the text, which is called exegesis. So regressive methods of interpretation are one of the dangers that we can get ourselves into. This is one of the things that we regularly find in Christian circles because we're just not thinking about it. We're just kind of willy-nilly uh, starting and then changing and, and, and such. The second one that I would warn us against is inconsistent application of interpretation. And this is the one where we don't even try to make our theories fit. We, we pick something here, we pick something there, and they don't have to fit. I just believe them. I believe this here, I believe that there. And you say, well, but those kind of contradict each other. It doesn't matter, I believe them both. And this can happen a lot as well. Maybe just because we're not thinking about it. So this is where people borrow from various claims of different interpretive methods. They claim to believe certain parts of one method, 
and certain parts of other methods because they're just following where the Bible goes. And that's commendable. It's commendable to just go where the Bible goes. But over the next couple weeks, what you'll find, what we, what the foundation that we lay will be this, that the Bible is consistent and coherent and that God is not just throwing together random thoughts, but that it connects to itself, that it is a unified book. We'll talk about that. So it's very commendable in theory to just go where the Bible goes. But the problem is that the thing that you believe over here only makes sense when it's built upon the stuff that you reject. It, 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 it all comes apart. You see here, I kind of clipped out the top level and I put the top level on top of, of the stack. And, and now I've got something from one level and I've got some, uh, of my, it's, not, it's not sitting on my foundation anymore. My top level doctrine isn't even sitting upon the foundation I've built. It's like they're two entirely different things, and it doesn't work that way. Now, I'm not interested in getting into arguments over people, but there are some very well-known people today in, in theological circles that are like this. And a name that regularly, that always comes to my mind, and again, I'm not trying to cast dispersion upon the man. He's a good teacher. He's a good man. But the man that always comes to mind when I think of this is, if you're familiar with him, Dr. John MacArthur. He's a man who is both a devoted Calvinist and a devoted dispensationalist. This is, these, these, these don't go together. They don't go together. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Calvinism, dispensationalism, fine. We'll talk about dispensationalism in a few weeks. This is that point in the sermon, and I'm sure it happens in many sermons where you kind of roll your eyes and say, okay, it's time to chew the meat and spit out the bones with what Pastor Wickler's saying, because I don't get it. I don't know where he's going with this one. And that's fine, because that's how things go. Um, saying something unnecessary, confusing, or less than ideally thought out is one of those things that, as a human, I unfortunately will do. But if you know where I'm going, I mean, if, if you know what both of those things are, then this is, if you do know what I'm talking about, th this is one of those things that, that he does, and he's led many churches and people into, where he believes very similar things as we do on end times, on the future of Israel as a nation, on the differences between the church and Israel, but he also is a five-point Calvinist. And if you take that foundation of salvation that's found in Calvinism and you build it up, you cannot come to dispensationalism. You cannot come to dispensationalism. It just does not work. There is a fundamental inconsistency between the two. This is an inconsistent application of interpretation. Uh, by the way, just since we're on the point very quickly, um, it's the same thing with three, two, two three, four-point Calvinists. Inconsistent. You either have them all or you have them none. Oh, you have them none. <laughs> you either have them all, you have none when it comes to it because they all build upon each other for a, the, a consistent biblical interpretation. So everything becomes nonsense if we become incoherent, if we, if we are just picking and choosing our interpretive methods. Things that cannot go together, we try to jam together, and then the inconsistencies, we just say, well, God knows. And we just leave them up to God, which, again, there's a commendable element to that if it weren't that your top tier three doctrines are dramatically inconsistent with what you believe about your foundations. And whether or not we can just say, well, let's just leave it with the Lord, 
unfortunately, it's still nonsense. And the human capacity to perceive inconsistencies is amazing. And these inconsistencies have a way of turning people away from the truth. And especially when these inconsistencies come from the top, they can really make people confused and lead to frustration. And the point is not that we need to be perfect and have all of our ducks in a row or just not speak. But the point is that we try to have our ducks in a row, that we admit when something we believe or theorize has inconsistencies that we aren't comfortable with, and we have enough humility to change our minds if our, our understanding takes us in that direction. And again, I don't desire, and I mentioned Dr. MacArthur this morning. Uh, he, he's, he's a man that has had an influence upon the church in many positive ways that, that most likely I never will. So I'm not, and, and I'm a flawed vessel, he's a flawed vessel, and the Lord uses flawed vessels, and thank God for that, or else he could use none of us. So I'm not trying to tell you he's a bad man or anything of the sort this morning. He is certainly not. And I can only imagine, as I think of this idea of inconsistencies, especially among those who are, who are uh, higher theologians, um, men that are well, uh, many books and, and such, I can only imagine what it must be like. And, and let me just bring you into, into this thought process for a moment. What it must be like to be a high-profile teacher who has written books and who has preached seminars. Imagine how humble a man must have to be if he has written a book on something to rethink that issue when it's already out there, when he's, got, when he's sold copies. Imagine how humbling that would be. Imagine how hard it would be for a man to not just kind of say, well, I don't know if that's actually correct, but I've written this many books on it, so I'm just going to kind of dig my heels in and just go with it. Imagine how hard it would be to, to backtrack if you've written books, if you've done seminars, if you've built you know, colleges on this idea. You know, every sermon I've ever preached is online. Because of this, it becomes more difficult for me to feel comfortable contradicting myself on a formal viewpoint. Now, thank the Lord, in my case, I can just go delete on the sermon and it, it's gone. And, uh, you know, I can move on from there if I would ever so need to do that. But imagine if you're a best-selling author and 15 years after you wrote a best-selling book, now you have to say, I don't think I was right about that. That would take an incredible amount of humility. And God help me, I hope I would have the humility to do it, but I can't stand here and say that because that's, that's a great deal of humility. God, God help each of us that we would have that kind of humility to, to, to answer uh, when we're wrong. But it becomes more and more difficult the more and more public you are, right? So let's uh, remember to be gracious with people as well is kind of where that was going. All right, that was a bit of a side note. If we avoid both of these problems, then we're only dealing with competing theological systems, right? We're, we're dealing with systems that are consistent, but that have different foundations and have built up from different foundations. And because they have been built up from different foundations, they come to different conclusions. And now we are going to debate the foundations. We're not necessarily debating the conclusions. So I can sit down with people of different stripes who claim to love God and, uh, and whose lives bear the fruit of the Spirit so I know that they're believers and we can have conversations about inconsistencies in our beliefs if we can find the right foundation, right? So if we can agree on salvation by grace through faith, if we can agree that the Word of God is true, then we can begin to build. We can find common ground. Now, if, if we can't even find the common ground on the foundation, then, then it's, not, it's a waste of our time, right? Because we have no common ground. But if we're all in the faith, if we all have that common ground, then we can start to work through some of these differences, maybe agree to disagree at some points. 
But that isn't going to happen in our, in, in our society unless the, the Spirit of God performs a great miracle because, you know, pride is an insidious foe and our churches just have way too much of it. So then what are those foundational truths? That's the question for today. The foundations. What are the foundational truths that help us seek a consistent and honest foundation to a house of cards? The very bottommost layer that everything else must agree with if we're going to have this house of cards stand properly. And that's what we need to talk about first as we consider the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ because we're going to be talking about what I'll call uh, maybe second or third tier doctrines when we get to end time stuff. It's founded upon what we believe about the gospel. It's founded upon what we believe about the church and Israel. This is going to make or break what we believe about the end times. So we're going to start from the beginning and we're just going to build this. We're going to build it. We're going to talk about how to interpret the Bible. Then we're going to talk about why we interpret it the way we do. Then we're going to talk about what we see are the major themes in Scripture. Then we're going to talk about the big picture and then we're going to get, we're going to get narrow and we're going to appeal to the big picture all throughout the book of the Revelation. We're going to keep going back to our foundation. This is why we believe what we believe. This is why, why we don't go in this direction or that direction because if we did, while, everything, while there's plenty of verses that might lend themselves to this conclusion, it is inconsistent with our foundation, and so we're, we're not going to go there, and there's another explanation that serves just as well that is consistent with our foundation. And what this will give us, brethren, is confidence. It'll give us confidence. And if we do start really feeling like there's something wrong with the way that we're interpreting the end times, well then, what we need to do is go back to our foundations and start to reinterpret them and start to fundamentally decide whether or not our foundations are correct. And if we come to the same conclusion that our foundations are correct, well, then we just need to go with what's consistent. So let's lay the foundation this morning to our house of cards. And we're going to talk about several points about the the foundation. And point number one, these are fundamental assumptions, foundations to our interpretive method of the house of cards. We believe that the Bible is an accurate book. We believe the Bible is an accurate book. If the Bible is not true, then we are all wasting our time here. If the Bible is not true, then we all might as well go home and shut the doors and I'll just, you know, go work somewhere else because we're all just wasting our time here. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible makes fantastic claims which often defy what our senses tell us every day. The Bible tells us God created the world out of nothing. The Bible tells us God formed man in his image and gave him dominion. That there is that there was a global cataclysmic flood which defined the earth as we know it today. That miracles and dreams and visions and supernatural events have been used by God to instruct men. That God has a plan. And most foundationally, That some 2,000 years ago, God appeared in flesh. He bore our sins. He died on the cross. He rose again three days later in a physical, eternal body, never to die again, and then to redeem those who believe in him unto unto himself. And in regard to itself, the Bible testifies this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Scripture is God-breathed, and Scripture 
is profitable. That what was penned by holy men of God over a thousand years of history was given by God to men so that we believe it is true and we believe it is accurate. But we believe not only that it was inspired and that the original manuscripts, when God had them written, were accurate, were true, were exactly what God wanted them to be. But then we also believe that God has preserved his word. Because what good is an inspired Bible if it has not been preserved? What good is it that 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, God inspired men to pen the words of scripture if mankind has then just corrupted the word of God so that today we don't even know if what we have is the word of God? What good is it then? What good is it if it has not been preserved? And so we don't just believe that God has inspired his word in the originals, but we believe that God has then taken it upon himself to preserve his words for us from generation to generation. God said in Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The Bible testifies not that, God, that man has copiously preserved God's word, but that God has taken it upon himself through human vessels to preserve his word for us. Now, this is a very simplistic explanation. Uh, there are several other venues in which I get much deeper into the doctrines of biblical inspiration and preservation are about legacy class has that. We've talked about it several times recently on Tuesday nights. I would encourage you to dig into that a little bit more. But this is what we believe. And if we do not believe that the Bible is inspired and preserved, then we are going to find ourselves on shaky ground. Because how can I trust a Bible that's inspired but has not been preserved? I mean, I can't even trust my child to get from me to mom with a message without it getting corrupted. If I can't even trust my child to get from me to mom with a message without it getting corrupted, how can I trust 2,000 years of transmission for a Bible? All right? We trust that God has preserved his word. To approach the Bible as a book of truth makes all the difference in the world in regard to how you interpret it. You'll find today two general categories who are represented in faith circles in regard to the Bible. There are those who have no confidence in the accuracy of the Word of God. They feel the teachings of Scripture are subject to change, to addition, to subtraction. They feel certain teachings are culturally outdated, and so they are irrelevant, effectively believing that there's no way this one book written within history could accurately speak to the situation of mankind in times and cultures of every generation. To them, the Bible is a book of general ideas and guidelines which must be altered in every generation to fit the needs of the people at hand and so to adapt to its surroundings. They actively judge the Bible. They impose their thoughts on it. They impose cultural trends on it. They impose societal expectations on it. And in doing so, they make the Bible little more than any other religious book of any time long past, which only has marginal relevance to us today as a historical reference and as good template and teachings. That's on one side. Then on the other side, you have the people that believe that the Bible is true, accurate, trustworthy, inspired, preserved. They believe God has given us the timeless word, which spans generations and cultures, that it is a timeless book. They believe that successful cultures, societies, families, and individuals build upon the truths of the Bible as they exist, not twisting the truths of the Bible to fit what they think. 
To we who stand upon this philosophy, which is where Legacy Baptist Church stands, the Word of God is not just helpful thoughts. It is the very foundation of every element of our life. Every thought, every intent, every desire is filtered first through the revelation of God's word, then filtered through the spirit of God as he applies his word to our hearts and so becomes that which God wants it to be. In other words, we don't judge the Bible. We, we let the Bible judge us. Rather than standing above the text and deciding which parts are relevant and which parts are simply outdated as if God could never have anticipated what life would be like in 2018. We submit ourselves to its truths, fully persuaded that we can do no better as individuals, as families, or as churches, or even as societies than when we are conformed to the expectations of the Word of God because it's accurate in every area to which it speaks. Foundational to our house of cards is that we believe the Bible is true, that it is an accurate book. We believe that to whatever extent what we read in the Bible doesn't align with what we know or what we understand, the problem is not with God's word. The problem is with our knowledge or understanding because God's word is true. So number one, we believe the Bible to be an accurate book. Number two, we believe the Bible to be a deliberate book. In other words, we believe that God inspired the Bible with the intent of making himself known to us. We believe that God has desired to communicate himself to man, that God wants to make himself known. God is not sitting up in heaven laughing at us as the world gropes in darkness for light. God is not playing a game of cosmic cat and mouse, cosmic hide and seek with us, making us earn everything as we struggle through the labyrinth like a rat in a maze looking for the cheese at the end. That's not the God that we serve. Rather, we believe that God has penned the Bible for the exact purpose of making himself known to us, that that's why this book exists, because God intends to communicate himself to us so that we can confidently state that God has gone out of his way to reveal himself to us. How has God done that? Psalm 19.1 tells us creation is a part of that. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Creation. God has gone out of his way to show himself to us. People come up to you perhaps sometimes and say, well, if God is real, why does he, why, why does he go to such lengths to hide himself? You wake up every morning, your heart's still beating. Somehow you know to breathe. Do you have to think about that? I'm moving my fingers as some impulses in my brain are telling it somehow to do that. I don't, I don't know how that works. I'm just doing it. It's amazing. The, the eyes and, and the ears and my nose and how they work together. I can walk because of a little bit of fluid in my ear that's allowing me to understand my balance. It's incredible. You're telling me the heavens don't declare the glory of God? You ever gone out on a clear night and looked up at the sky? The heavens don't declare the glory. Has he really gone out of his way to hide himself from us? You look at a beautiful car and you say, wow, I wonder who makes that model. You never say, wow, I wonder which factory blew up. Right? Because where we see creation, we understand a creator. Romans 1.20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Look, folks are without excuse because God is clearly seen in creation. That's what the Bible says. <coughs> also, not just creation, but also the law of God written on our hearts, our moral center, the part of us that understands right and wrong. We call it our conscience. Romans 1.32 tells us that these that unbelievers, that, that the wicked world, knowing the judgments of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. The Bible tells us man knows the judgments of God, that they know what is right and wrong, that they know what they have fallen short of, the, and that is the right, that they've fallen short of righteousness, and that because every man has an innate moral understanding of right and wrong, men know the judgments of God. The fact that universal morality exists, that anyone around the world will admit that murder is wrong, that theft is wrong, is a testimony to the fact that our Creator has written upon us a morality. That morality is not something that stems simply from cultural and societal considerations, but that morality is something much higher than that. And if our morals are, if they transcend culture, and if they transcend humanity, then there must be a higher moral being that has imposed them upon us. It stands to reckon that there is a moral arbiter who stands above these institutions if these institutions have had morality handed down to them. And if there's a moral arbiter who has given us these expectations, then we can know surely that we will be held accountable for those expectations. And so we know that not only do we have a creator through creation, but we know that this creator has a standard with which he holds us to because we have a conscience, because we have an innate moral center. Finally, God has revealed himself through special revelation. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Throughout history, God, who is above time, has consistently broken into time in order to reveal himself to mankind in deeper ways. Indeed, whether we speak of dreams or miracles or prophecies or writings, God has actively used man's methods of communication to disseminate information about himself. And the pinnacle of all of God's special revelation about himself is the word of God that we have already spoken about. To this end, we recognize that special revelation has nothing more to offer mankind today, that God has finished his work of speaking to man through his word. He is not adding to it any longer. God has revealed the beginning of history in Genesis. He revealed the end of history in Revelation. There's nothing else to add. God even left a warning in Revelation chapter 22, verse 18, not to add or take away from that final testimony of the book, declaring that the days of its arrival are at hand. And while we would recognize God's right to employ special revelation today, the sure testimony of God's word lends itself to the conclusion that any use of God's methods of special revelation in today's world would serve exclusively to point men and women to God's completed form of revelation in the Holy Scriptures. To this end, the Word of God exhorts the people of God to discern the spirits, 
and to only regard those spirits as valid which are 100% in keeping with the revelations of the Word of God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try, test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof ye have heard that it should come and even now already is it in the world. Test the spirits by the scriptures. This is our standard, our ruler. The word of God gives us the standard by which to judge the claims of men in regard to spiritual things. And what it tells us is that the testimony of God's word is that standard. Paul would say the same thing in regard to the gospel in Galatians 1.9. As we said before, so say, so, now, uh, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Paul declares the gospel which he gave unto them according to each of his epistles and, by, and which by his own admission we see throughout the scriptures as the standard by which we judge everything else. And now that we regard the scriptures as the standard bearer for special revelation, consider what it tells us about special revelation in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. This makes a pretty clear case that whereas in times past God spoke to the fathers through prophets, thus using men to verbally declare revelation and subsequently to record history uh, in written form and, and scripture in written form, in the last days God has chosen to speak to us through his Son. Jesus is the last step in the journey of special revelation. The apostles, the first generation of chosen men who had seen the risen Lord, were appointed by Jesus as his direct representatives to record his will in the scriptures, which we call the New Testament. To this end, the New Testament is the message of Jesus Christ to the world, concluding the revelation uh, concluding that, that revelation that Jesus gave to us with the aptly named book the revelation of Jesus Christ. There Jesus makes his final appeal. So Hebrews 1 does not say that God in these last days has chosen to speak to us through Jesus and angels or Jesus and prophets, not through a Joseph Smith, not through an Ellen G. White, not through a Muhammad. In these last days, the last days which the Bible explicitly states will lead all the way to the eternal state, God has chosen to speak through his son. He's the final bearer of God's revelation to mankind. And in revealing Jesus to the world, God has spoken finally and indelibly. Now, does that mean that the spirit is not working in the world today, that the spirit is not leading? No, as we mentioned already, God has every right to continue to use special revelation today, but as a means by which to draw people to and through the word of God. The Holy Spirit, as he guides and leads us, will never lead us contrary to the word of God, but rather guide us through the word of God. So the Bible is an accurate book. 
The Bible is a deliberate book. Coming back to the point more specifically, God wants you to know him. God asks you to know him. God promises that if you seek him, you will find him. God has made the way open and it's our job to take it. Even our, our verse for this month, Revelation 3.20, Jesus is speaking there to the churches. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and I will sup with him and he with me. If God is not trying to hide himself, then this means some important things for us. This means God is not hiding his will in some sort of Bible code. We don't have to read between the lines. We can just read the lines. That means we don't have to read between the lines. It means I don't have to become a 33rd degree Christian to finally understand God's will for me. This means that any man, woman, or child can hear the word of God that you and I have heard, can receive the spirit of God who is our guide and can thus respond to the gospel, can know God, can find in their creator not only redemption, but the good success that is promised by the word of God who has all things pertaining to life and godliness for us. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're in the White House or the jailhouse. Color, creed, culture, location. God has revealed himself to mankind because God wants his creation to know him. So that as you and I sit here today, we can know who God is, what God loves, what God hates, what God expects, God's plan for the world, why that plan is in place, how to align ourselves with it. And then as we commune with the Spirit of God, He can guide our daily steps, our daily decisions, our daily understanding into His will. He has not only given us the information, but has again assumed upon Himself the burden of giving unto us His Spirit. And if you are in Christ by salvation, in order that you may be taught by God Himself what pleases Him, the scriptures tell us this. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, but the anointing which ye have received of him, that's the spirit of God, by the way, abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. The person of God, the will of God taught to us in the word of God, which is taught to us by the spirit of God. I'm not here to teach you all things pertaining unto life and godliness. I'm here as your pastor to teach you what the Bible says. Then the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and teaches you what the Bible says and how it matters to you, and then you obey it. The Spirit of God. I'm a partner with the Spirit of God to help you go, grow in Christ. But the Spirit of God is the tool that you have to understand the word of God, to apply the word of God and to live moment by moment, abiding in him, thus walking with him. And if we don't believe that, then it's going to dramatically change how we interpret the Bible, isn't it? If we, don't, if we do not believe that God has gone out of his way to communicate to man and that this is a deliberate book that God has desired to communicate to us, it's going to change the way we interpret the Bible. So if we, if, if we believe the Bible is an accurate book, it's going to change the way we interpret the Bible. If we believe that God communicated to man that the Bible is a deliberate book, it's going to change the way we interpret. Third, we believe that the Bible is a unified book, that, through, that throughout the history, the history of man, the Bible being penned into 66 books, 
at least in our English Bible, over a period of roughly 2,000 years by about 40 different penmen written in different languages, we yet believe that the Bible is a coherent, cohesive, single, unified message from beginning to end given to mankind through penmen, but by God himself. The Bible begins with a perfect creation and ends with a perfect creation. Beautiful bookmarks. Bookends, excuse me. The Bible begins with an uncontested rule of God over creation and ends with the uncontested rule of God over creation. The Bible contains many accounts, many events, many people, much interweaving with what we understand of human history. But it falls along these lines that God created a perfect creation. Man is given dominion over that creation. Man then attempts, uh, Satan attempts to usurp God by convincing man to challenge God's authority and to seek to claim his own authority over that creation. All of creation falls when man, who is given dominion over it, falls and is placed under the curse. But God loved his creation. And so he began a plan. He put a plan in place, beginning in Genesis 15, to redeem his creation unto himself. And this plan ends by paying the debt through his son, Jesus Christ. So all of the Old Testament is tracing God's plan on how he would bring his son into the world to redeem man. And then, of course, we see interwoven with that Satan's attempts to thwart God's plan in every age and generation. The gospel records the culmination of God's plan to have his son pay for the sins of mankind, to conquer sin and the curse of sin called death by means of the resurrection, and then initiate a body of followers who would testify of his love called the church. At this point, redemption was purchased, but men and women are still making their choices. Many are redeemed, many more will reject him, and the world continues in its fallen state. Once all who will believe do believe, Jesus will return. He'll gather his followers unto himself. He'll judge the world. He'll rule and reign in righteousness. And eventually, he will restore the earth to the state of perfection that God had initially created it to be. Thus, beginning with a perfect creation and ending with that perfect creation. This brief rundown is really the Bible from beginning to end. It's a coherent whole. It's got one message from beginning to end. A unified message penned by many hands, written over thousands of years, but a unified message. Fourth, the Bible is a spiritual book. So the Bible is an accurate book. We believe that. The Bible is a deliberate book. We believe that. The Bible is a unified book. We believe that. We, we believe as well that the Bible is a spiritual book. This is the last of our deepest foundational assumptions. If you and I can't agree on these foundational assumptions, then we really have nowhere to go from there. Because we are, we, 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 we're, we're going to be fundamentally different in how we see things. Now, we might, we might disagree on some of the nuances of, of how these play out. That's, that's fine. But can we agree on these things? This, this is very important if we're going to build the same house of cards. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 16, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The Bible says the natural man cannot receive spiritual things. 
To this end, we understand that the spiritual concepts of the word of God can only be received by men to the extent that first, the Holy Spirit has revealed them and second, the recipients accept them by faith. What this means is that only those who have the mind of Christ can understand and receive with gladness the spiritual concepts of the word of God. Only those who have the mind of Christ, who have the spirit of God teaching them, as we talked about in 1 John 2, can understand and receive with gladness the concepts of humility and obedience and submission. Only those who have the mind of Christ can understand the scope of God's plan for mankind and creation. There are many unbelievers who, lacking the mind of Christ, are able to understand the technical elements of the Bible, understand its language, understand its history. But what they will invariably lack is the capacity within themselves to receive the spiritual truths that undergird it, the underlying meanings of the Word of God. And by the way, this is not just the unbeliever. But the Bible tells us that believers who reject the revelation of God's Word for their own reasons, selfishness, their own priorities, pride, that these believers can also be judged with darkness and lack the insight to be able to understand the spiritual teachings of the Word of God properly. To this end, to understand the Bible and to receive it unto benefit, I must have the mind of Christ. I must be walking in the Spirit. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Skipping to chapter 2, verse 11, But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. Here we see John warning believers that darkness can blind their eyes. If we choose to walk in darkness, if we reject the revelation of Scripture, that we can be judged with darkness and so that we will lose our capacity to discern right and wrong properly, even as believers, until such time as we repent. That believers can be judged with darkness as well. The judgment for walking out of fellowship with Christ is a lack of spiritual discernment, even for those who are indwelled by His Spirit as they quench or grieve the Spirit of God. So, Pastor, if the only way anyone can discern the spiritual is by the Spirit of God, and if the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, does that mean that an unbeliever must be given faith before he can believe and be saved? No, it does not. There's a specific subset of spiritual truths which Jesus explicitly said the Spirit of God does reveal to the unbelieving world. There's a specific subset of spiritual concepts that, that Jesus says the Spirit of God reveals to unbelievers. And Jesus teaches this in John 16, verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. He's speaking to his, his disciples here. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. The unbelieving world, those that are outside the mind of Christ, uh, are reproved through the conviction of sin because they've not believed on Jesus Christ. They are reproved of righteousness because Jesus is righteous and they are not. They are reproved of judgment because Satan is judged and all of those who do not follow Christ into salvation will be judged with him. These are the only spiritual truths which the Bible says the Spirit of God reveals to unbelievers. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. 
And so we can trust that the Spirit of God is actively revealing these truths to the unbelieving world. But they can't get past that. They can't get past that until they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's why it's fruitless to speak with unbelievers on, on deep spiritual things. They can talk with you on a theoretical level, on a language level, on a grammatical level, but they cannot talk with you on a spiritual level because they cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Which is why when you're dealing with an unbeliever, you keep bringing it back to the gospel because by the promise of Christ, the Spirit of God is active in the hearts of unbelievers, revealing to them the, the, the reality of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so the Bible is a spiritual book. Being a spiritual book, all the Bible says beyond sin, righteousness, and judgment cannot be received by those who are dominated by the natural man because they are spiritually discerned. Within these four points, we lay the basis for the house of cards upon which we will build as we walk through the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the same foundation upon which every doctrine is built in the church. And these are the foundational assumptions which if a person does not at least agree with in conversation and expectation, we know that we're not going to find unity, consensus, or even a reasonable talking point. We can't play the game of discussion, debate, or iron sharpening iron because we're not even in the same ballpark. This is, however, the foundation for how we interpret the Bible at Legacy Baptist Church. And it has been the foundation for Orthodox theologians for generations. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul taught Timothy, saying this, verses 14 to 19, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrown the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his." And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Our confidence in our approach to the word of God is this, that the foundation of God stands sure, that the Lord knows who are, who, who are his, and that everyone who names the name of Christ is called to depart from iniquity. And so we study to show ourselves approved. So we seek to rightly divide the word of truth because this one thing we know that no matter what I believe and no matter what you believe, there's a God in heaven who intended to communicate his word to us and he has given us through his spirit all the tools necessary to understand it. And we're going to stand before God one day accountable, not for what I thought the Bible said or what you think the Bible says, but for what God thinks the Bible says for what God has revealed to us through his word and through his spirit. And because we have confidence that we can know what God intends it to say, because he has given us of his spirit, which allows us to receive the things of the spirit, who is our teacher, the implication then is that in each disagreement in the church, in the midst of each gray area, someone is right, someone is wrong, or we're both wrong, or we've made mountains out of molehills, things that God never even intended us to debate about. And if we were all 
reading the scriptures, intending that God, uh, believing that God communicated and that it was an accurate book. And uh, if we all had the same foundation and the same spirit within us, then, then we would come to generally compatible conclusions. There might be places, again, where we'd have to agree to disagree. But we are in a fractured, scattered church today. And we are in a fractured, scattered church because we can't even agree on the foundation of God that stands sure. And if we can't agree on the foundation of God that stands sure, we're certainly not going to agree on anything that's built on top of it. So that's what we're doing here today and over the next many weeks. We are going to create, uh, identify, we're going we're we're to walk through many, many points and steps that identify this foundation of God. And it's all going to start with these four points that we talked about today. The Bible is an accurate book. The Bible is a deliberate book God intended to communicate. The Bible is a unified book, one coherent message, and the Bible is a spiritual book. We'll pick up here next week with the next layer, and we'll just keep stacking it until we're ready to actually dig into the revelation of Jesus Christ.